Because the truth is, all of us need some of us to make it through this journey at EPWY. So throw them AirPods in, or your Apple headphones with the mic in your ears, get your notebook out, and get ready for your extra course. Black Girl at PWI is starting now, and class is officially in session. All right, all right, beautiful people. So we are back for another episode that isn't really like our regularly scheduled Black Girl to PWY episodes, but it's still an episode nevertheless. Do you catch what I'm saying? So as you all know, I'm in the middle of final season. I'm getting ready to graduate. Countdown to May 7th. Turn me up. But, 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 but. I got a project and instead of doing a research paper, I was like, I'm not going to do that. Um, and instead I'm going to talk on the mic that I've been talking on for roughly 10 episodes now and we just going to kick it. Um, but more specifically, my beautiful professor will be listening to this. So, um, if you are able, well, you're not able to say, Hey professor, but professor, please know that the beautiful people of Black Grad at PWI are shouting you out right now because we know that you are going to so deeply enjoy this episode so much that you're going to give me an A, as do the regularly listening folks of Black Girl at a PWI. So today, I want to talk about something. I am in this class called Race, Class, and the City. For whatever reason, I've been calling it race, class, and crime, and that's not the name of the class. It's race, class, in the city. And earlier in the year, right, earlier when we were kind of kicking off the year and we were getting into some of the books and scholars, we focused on this one particular book. And I kid you not, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but what stood out to me was, is it race, class, in the city? Hold on. I think it's race, class... And spate dog. I don't know. It's a geography class. All in all. I'm not even going to say the name because at this point, this is embarrassing. It's geography class. And basically, it focuses on what I took away from it, which is kind of how geography or ge- geographical locations can reveal different things about race. Does that make sense? So what I took away from it, <laughs> this, this might be a better idea. What I took away from it in the beginning of the class was talking about the spatial locations of racism. We read this book. Again, I don't know the name of the book, and I probably should know, and I should do better, but here we are. And in the book, it was talking about segregation. And more specifically, it was talking about how segregation, as we all know, right, as many of us know, had these pockets. Does that make sense? In which it was like geographical locations would let you know that you're safe here, that you're not safe here. So I might be on one border, one side of the street, and that's safe, right? The other side of the street, though, could be a totally different territory in which now I am caught on my name, now I am persecuted, I might be hung, I might be shot dead, etc. And so what was fascinating to me, not because it was, it was fun, but because it was just a fascinating idea or rather perspective outside of my sociological perspective in which it's like we have these lines that exist all within our world where it's like this is the good side and this is the bad side, meaning that this is the good side, like this is the white side and this is the black side or even this is the side in which you are safe and this is the side in which you are not safe this is the side in which you will be called the n-word and this is the side in which you will not be called the n-word this is the side in which you can get lynched and this is the side in which you cannot get lynched 
In a more um, formal way to say this, we might talk about things like gentrification. We might talk about things like gentrification as it relates to what grocery stores end up in a community. Many times this community that has been gentrified is a predominantly black community, a more predominantly minority community or minoritized community in which um, they may not have had uh, the infrastructure or they might have the infrastructure and the value of the area is being increased. So now that the folks who have been there for decades and decades have to be forced and moved out so that white folks can inhabit that space, build their Whole Foods, have their yoga mats, have new playgrounds and all of that, which was not given to black folks when they were there. Take it a step further when maybe even a couple years back, but as we'll discuss in this episode, is actually not a couple years back, you have um, a very strict, quote-unquote, racial segregation in which if you are at in a town at a particular time of night, you're now in a sundown town, right? Does that make sense? So in the daytime, when you're in this town, in this geographical space, in this spatial location, you're safe as a Black person. But once that clock hits six, once that sun goes down, You being in that town now costs you your life, your livelihood, your humanity, and your family's life, livelihood, and humanity. You might be um, exposed to lynching. You might more than likely will be exposed to some type of uh, persecution, whether that's verbal or physical. All the space, all the geographical location, but on paper, And in person, there are these lines. And in America, when it comes to blackness and whiteness, or rather when it comes to race and more specifically black folks and white folks, America and the white folks in America have constructed these things that they call color lines um, in which it enforces racial segregation post-slavery. But in all actuality, I don't believe that it's been just post-enslavement, but rather even enslavement in and of itself was the first example of color lines in America. That's neither here nor there. All in all, white America has constructed these things called color lines in which I can do this because I'm white, but the moment you step over this line, you have no rights to do that because you are not white. We've created, or rather, (laughs) white folks have created these color lines in which this is acceptable for me, this is unacceptable for you. And more specifically, I believe that white America has done this by way of uh, social norms, cultural norms, um, to further exclude black folks, right? Um, and then I believe white America has also done this by institutional norms as well. The very creation of institutions that we see, whether it be colleges, um, specific living areas, neighborhoods, workplaces, um, specific grocery stores have still created these color lines that exist in which white folks are allowed here and black folks aren't. It might not now be the side of the street, but more so which Whole Foods you pull up to or which grocery store you pull up to. You pulling up to Whole Foods, you're going to see more white people. You pulling up to Walmart, you're going to see more black folks. Those in and of themselves could also be considered color lines. Which streets you turn down and can park on, which street you're afraid you're going to be jumped in. That is an example of color line, not based on the folks just living in that community, but based on the folks who created that color line and forced those folks into that community. Does that make sense? 
So today in this episode, that's what I actually want to talk about because it intrigued me. Again, I'm a sociology major and a social justice minor, so I don't necessarily get as much leeway to dip and dab into other disciplines to really investigate how they see race and how they interact with it. For geography more specifically, I was interested because I never thought of, in such a formal way, this color line. The color line of segregation. That you could be in this swimming pool, but not this one. That you could be at this playground, but not this one. On this bus, but not this one. In this house, but not this one. How time can also play a major role in that, as I mentioned, sundown towns. But I think color lines interested me or interest me currently now so much because here at Black Eye to PWI, we exist within a system of color lines. That color lines have not just been a thing of the of the past centuries or of our grandparents or our great-grandparents, but rather we still live in, live around, adhere to, and sometimes uphold color lines at predominantly white institutions and more specifically colleges and universities across America. When I think about predominantly white institutions, well, let's be clear, it's predominantly white. And so no matter how big a majority of a non-white group gets, the predominant culture is still white, which means that there is still a particular type of adherence to white culture, white people, or even, and many times, white history. No matter how many folks, many black folks organize, uh, come into a predominantly white institution, it will always remain predominantly white, even if white folks are not the majority anymore. I've heard sometimes, and this is a caveat, <laughs> I've seen some of my, my black folks, my black brothers and sisters who go to predominantly white institutions mess around, and they always mess up here. They mess around, they get on them HBCU pages. I follow all of them because I love black people. And they get on them HBCU pages, and they be like, my PWI is like an HBCU. No. It's just a pool of y'all in an ocean of white folks. That don't make it an HBCU. That don't make it an all-black pool. Do you get what I'm saying? But no, for real, either way, no matter how many black folks are at this predominantly white institution, it's not called a PWI just for fun. It's not even just called a PWI just because of the amount of people who go there being predominantly white. Predominantly white does not always equate to the majority physically by way of numbers, but predominantly white also speaks to the culture, the community, and the history of that institution and the people of that institution that has been upheld. Predominantly white institutions, many of which have not been created by black folks, but have been created, sustained, and upheld by white folks, whether it's white alumni, white history. And so as a result, it tells the story of a predominant group of people that does not include predominantly black people at the sense in which um, predominantly white black people are the heroes of the story. Does that make sense? So I'm thinking about color lines as it relates to predominantly white institutions. This is exactly what I'm thinking about. And matter of fact, when I was going through and I was making notes about just the different things that I was reading and seeing and understanding about segregation, I realized that, to be very honest, at predominantly white institutions, we make segregation look easy. 
in note in this episode specifically when I say we, I'm typically referring um, in a passive voice to predominantly white institutions, not as if I'm white, but solely because I attend a predominantly white institution. There will be some times in this episode in which I separate it and I'm talking about like, oh, black folks, eh, white folks, you know, I'm making that clear separation. But I believe that we at predominantly white institutions do make segregation look easy. I think it's really cute when we say that segregation does not exist anymore. Problematic when we say that segregation does not exist anymore. But a flat-out lie if we say that segregation doesn't look easy at predominantly white institutions. When in many ways, shapes and forms, is the very fabric of a predominantly white institution. Segregation. Color lines exist all throughout this world, all throughout America, and more specifically at predominantly white institutions, right? And as we've talked about this on the podcast, there is no such thing as just being in a predominantly white institution and then it not being a predominantly white culture behind that as well. You might have a predominantly predominantly black class. It does not mean that your curriculum is predominantly black or that the culture is predominantly black or that even your sentiment will be rooted towards a predominantly black culture or sentiment of belonging. One thing I've also noticed about predominantly white institutions, and this goes back to the color line, of course, because that's the topic of today's conversation. But one thing I've noticed about predominantly white institutions is that they have lately had this, I don't know what to call it. Could I call it a stronghold? Family, let's call it a stronghold. I think predominantly white institutions have this stronghold of diversity and inclusion on them. And I'm not laughing and saying that it's inappropriate to have this priority, to have these values that are rooted around diversity and inclusion. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying, though, is that a stronghold can sometimes appear like it's a good thing on the outside and inside is really keeping you from actually believing what you say you prioritize. And when it comes to PWIs, and not just specifically UMW, but really PWIs all across the country, especially the bigger ones, diversity and inclusion might be on the outside, but it is definitely not rooted on the inside. Why? Because I personally do not believe that you can have a pen or a stroke of diversity and inclusion and then act like the paper is in segregation. That's the root of it. Or else... If the very fabric of it, the very essence of a predominantly white institution was diversity and inclusion, would it be appropriate to call it a predominantly white institution? Would it be appropriate to even prioritize diversity and inclusion hundreds of years after the creation of a predominantly white institution if that was the very fabric of it? The answer is, or rather the question is rhetorical, the answer is no. Predominantly white institutions do not begin and start with diversity and inclusion, but rather that tends to be the main focus over the past couple of years. I don't know if it, I think it kind of started around early 2010s. We kind of see this conversation around diversity and inclusion as it relates to um, late 2009s, maybe like like 2009, 2008. We see this conversation uh, be created in academia and in higher education around diversity and inclusion. What does this look like? Now, I'm not going to get into the fact that typically when we say diversity and inclusion, we're leaving out equity. And that's really why the racial segregation or the color line can still exist. But that's neither here nor there. All in all, PWIs have this stronghold of diversity and inclusion on them. 
they say it, they speak it, they write it, they put it into apparel, they put it into missions, they put it into visions, they might even create an entire program around it. Trust me, I've been a victim to it. I've helped it come to pass. I still sustained one because I believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I also believe that predominantly white institutions say it and don't live it out. I don't believe they live it out because the very fabric of predominantly white institutions is rooted around segregation, but also the very sustenance of predominantly white institutions are rooted and founded in color lines. So I'm going to take y'all through it and we're going to spell out color. Do you get what I'm saying? We start with C, we talk about the classroom. When you come into a classroom at a predominantly white institution, what makes a gen ed a gen ed and what makes a major a major? And then I want you to ask the question, what makes a minor a minor? Now, I've had this conversation many times in my institution. I understand that there are many things that go into making a major a major, a lot of processes, a lot of long conversations. But I also understand that sometimes the most important things that are rooted around diversity and inclusion are actually a minor. And sometimes even just elective credits rather than an actual gen ed requirement. Do you catch my drift? Again, I told you I'm a sociology major, but I'm a social justice minor. We just now, here at my institution, got an African studies minor, African American studies minor, African studies minor, something of that sort. But nevertheless, the two more important things that fall into the field or realm of diversity and inclusion are minors, but not majors. We say this is a conversation that takes place with faculty within their own cohorts, and that is a conversation in and of itself. But what makes a classroom experience? If you get to pick and choose what classes you speak about race in, then you further get to sustain this type of ignorance as you move into the real world and say that you didn't know that black and white was a thing. You get to stay on the other side of the color line and really segregate in the classrooms to say, we don't talk about race here. Or even worse, we talk about race here at the expense of the black students in here. I believe that's the color line. We like to segregate classes in a way in which we put all the black students in the most traumatizing classes about African-American slavery or slavery of the enslavement of Africans and then put all the white students into fun classes like yoga and all that other stuff. Is that not a color line? One particular group experiencing trauma as a result of academia and the other being able to bask and being the predominant culture and therefore being catered to the most in the classroom experience. It sounds like a color line to me. Even when we look at who has the power in the classroom. I know when it comes to some classes like black history or um, all the classes I took at um, my institution around (laughs) black history was a little traumatizing. But, you know, uh, classes that speak to the black experience or Africana studies and things of that nature um, at predominantly white institutions for what I have seen, what I have heard and much of what I have experienced or experienced through my peers is that the person who has the power in the classroom isn't the black student who was taught to speak up in the classroom or who was low-key forced to be the professor in the classroom, but it's the professor. I had a professor at one point in time in which we talked about uh, enslavement a lot. 
I did go a lot. It was like um, history, some, 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 since like the 1800s. We, we just talked about enslavement a lot. And in that professor being the kind of authority figure in the classroom, I don't think we talk about that enough, kind of the power dynamics between uh, white professors and black students within the classroom. Um, with that individual being the authority figure in the classroom, the language that she would use to talk about the black experience was demeaning. She'd use words like Negro. Um, she would say quotes out of the book, which would be a uh, trigger word. I'm going to say that any are a uh, right nigger. Um, she would speak to, and this is not just her, but other professors, you know, that I've heard um, or that I've seen or that I've been made aware of, not just at my institution, but other institutions across America, right? They'll use this harmful language. And then when black students ask them not to say it, they s- still say it still demean, still put black folks in this line of fire to be traumatized within the classroom at the expense of excelling academically. So instead of just getting educated, I get traumatized alongside that. To me personally, that seems like the upholding of a color line. If I take it a step further and I become a little bit more theoretical in my approach, I could say that in many ways, a classroom seems safe during the daytime. But as soon as you start talking about race, it becomes a sundown town for black students in which it starts off cool when you're talking about race in and of itself. But then the moment you start talking about enslavement and start using harmful words and derogatory language to counter or to make sense of the black experience to black students in the classroom, what you end up doing is really lynching black students once it gets dark does that make sense hopefully i'm not being too deep but all in all this is how i think of the color lines existing in predominantly white institutions i also see it in opportunities at, at predominantly white institutions right who gets the opportunities to connect and network with individuals within their major so I'm going to have to call out some folks, but I'm, not, I'm obviously not going to do names because I respect um, everybody. But at predominantly white institutions, I've seen this thing in which you have black students, you promote diversity and inclusion. You have all these black students, more specifically, who are at these institutions, who are excelling within their majors. But they do not have access to alumni associations or to alumni associations that represent them and their blackness going into America and corporate world or whatever in the same way that white students can always lean on white alumni to support them and network with them, even when they're freshmen. So as a result, the folks who get the opportunities is a result of the color line. White folks who are able to connect with alumni who look like them, who have probably similar experiences of them, probably have similar uh, work and career goals as them, are able to connect with white alumni at an earlier point in time in which black students many times have to suffer through their major by themselves and then are unable to connect with alumni who look like them because black alumni or alumni of color didn't feel safe enough at the institution as an undergrad to come back and support the institution through grad. And so now as a result, and I can't even put it on black alumni or alumni of color, those current students who are black or uh, students of color are now unable to reap the same benefits of a life post-grad or post-undergrad in which they are well-connected or well-networked or um, well-educated on opportunities because there were nobody or no person who looked like them in that field. Is that not a color line? If predominantly white institutions are 
supporting predominantly white culture and are rooted or committed to uplifting predominantly white students, then as a result, your alumni association or your alumni is going to be made up of white students at this predominantly white institution who felt good about the institution catering to their needs because they were white. And then they become alumni who then on the back end are looking for other students who are white, who they want to uplift as they were uplifted. All throughout this, there's a color line in which even alumni associations can become so predominantly white, just like the institution, that alumni or current students of that institution are not prepared to come back to that institution to contribute, to give, or even to contribute to society in a successful way because they did not have the opportunities to network as their white peers did. That's the color line. Even when we look at leadership at predominantly white institutions, I think it can reveal a lot. I don't know if you all listening notice, but we are still in an environment in which first still exist. For example, I am the first black woman SGA president or was the first black woman SGA president in the University of Mary Washington's hundred something year history. It's a lot. I'm sorry. Hundred some year history. And I'm still the first. There's been a lot of other firsts. But at predominantly white institutions all across America, and don't get me started on the South, and don't get me started on the North, because, y'all, there are still firsts happening. Not even at the student government association level. The first black blank major. The first black blank minor. The first black engineer of the university. You know, there, there are so many firsts that are still happening. And that comes down to leadership. Because if you look at predominantly white institutions, many times, especially depending on that geographical location, child, leadership looks predominantly white. So who gets to be the face of the university? It's a predominantly white institution. It's a predominantly white student body group. And if it's not, it's a predominantly white culture. So that means you're going to have to fit in and maybe even blend out your blackness just to fit in, just to run, and then you got to win. So you're battling up against a couple of things. But all in all, it boils down to who gets to represent the university. Much of this can be attributed to administration, but to be very honest, I think students draw this color line of who they want to listen to, who they feel best represents them. I know a lot of people, and they never said it to my face, but I know a lot of people were very hesitant with me becoming the first black woman SGA president, but really just the first, well, really just the SGA president because they had watched me. They knew that I was bold. They knew that I stood up for social justice. They knew that I was not um, against meeting with administration or, you know, having tough conversations to make the institution better, in which I believe that UMW is one of the very few PWIs that are willing to move and shake as a result of their student population. But nevertheless, they did not feel comfortable with my leadership. They said it was too black. Who I was was too black. And so as a result, my leadership would be too black. As a result, my promotion of of UMW would be too black. As a result, if I were to make the front pages of any promotional piece of information about UMW that was sent out, it would be too black. And as a result, there would be too many black folks coming to this predominantly white institution and that would tear apart what UMW was to many people. 
Is that not a color line? If students are able to say that you don't fit what this university looks like, but this university looks like predominantly white culture and history, are students not drawing a color line? Are students not segregating who deserves to be a leader and who doesn't based on race? Even when it comes to the other O in color, and this is arguably my favorite one. When I thought of color lines, this is the first thing I thought of. And I call this, this, this O out of sight and out of mind color lines. <laughs> out of sight and out of mind means if the black folks are gone and if we tell them that they can't come, then I'm just going to forget that black folks even exist at this, this university or this institution. And what I'm referring to is, of course, the off-campus parties. Uh, I love it. I love it. Not because it's it's funny because I enjoy it, but it's funny in theory because so many of us overlook the fact that color lines still exist. But off-campus parties is one of the greatest ways to see it. And many predominantly white institutions, from what I've seen, many black students are not coming there and balling out. Do you get what I'm saying? Many black students that I'm I'm encountering. Because if they were, half of them would have went to HBCU because they wouldn't have needed funding. So there's that. We'll revisit that later. But as for now, as it relates to to this, black students are on campus half the time. And if they're off campus, they are typically unable or unwilling or don't just don't want to buy a house, you know, for just black students. They may not have the means like that. They may not be born like that. Whereas what you will see with white fraternities, maybe even white sororities, white predominantly white sports teams or uh, white groups, they might be more affluent in the sense where they might have more money, they might be able to split rent, and so as a result, they are able to have houses or have these spaces belonging to them off campus. And so then as a result of that result, they're able to throw parties, and because it's their house, their parties, and they go to this school, a part of this fraternity, a part of this sorority, balling out in this capacity, they are therefore able to say who can come in and who cannot come in. Now, what I've seen firsthand is that these same group of people who are predominantly white, who have these houses, who throw these parties, will all day play black music, say the N-word, child, (laughs) will promote black culture, will participate in black culture. But the moment a black student, ooh, child, and don't let it be a group of black men or don't let it be a group of black women, walk up to that door. It's immediately, oh, we're not letting people in. Ten more white folks can be lined up right behind them and get into that party. Three black women will be denied getting into that party. That ain't nothing but a color line. Segregation of who can get into the party and who can't. And I would like to say that it's anything else but race, but that would be a flat-out lie because we're talking about predominantly white institutions and we've already addressed every other potential social group that could come into play with this. Right now, we're focusing on race. Predominantly white house, maybe a predominantly white sport, predominantly white culture that co-ops and likes to steal black culture but does not allow black folks to come in and enjoy their own culture. Why? It's too much, too much mixing. It's too much intermingling. 
And if all those black folks come in, because of the presence of black folks, many times their fear is the party is going to turn into this, this, or this. Many times uh, their hesitancy to let black students into these parties is based around stereotypes. They're going to make it ghetto. They're going to invite all their friends. Somebody's going to shoot. They're going to bring drugs. They're going to bring this. Meanwhile, many times, half of those things are already going out going on at the white parties without the inclusion of black folks. But the very inclusion of black folks, for whatever reason, does not come to pass at these off-campus or these off-campus parties because it's, to them, many folks, out of sight and out of mind. If I tell this black person and this black group of people that we're not letting anybody else in, when it's really just we're not letting any black folks in, It'll make me feel better because they'll be out of my sight. And as a result, they will be out of my mind. I won't have to think about it. That's not colorblind ideology. It's just you too scared to say that you racist. So you just don't want to let nobody into your party who doesn't look like you. That's a color line all day long. And it might just happen at the off-campus parties, but I would argue that it happens when it comes to social clubs at predominantly white institutions, who gets to be a leader in that social club, who gets to come into the social club. I don't know uh, thoroughly how white fraternities and sororities interact and how they operate, but sometimes you can see it in there at different predominantly white institutions that if you come into that sorority or fraternity, you have to deny your blackness and attribute yourself to whiteness while they mimic your blackness in your face. You know, you have all these different things that exist as a result of this out of sight, out of mind color line or ideology. But all in all, it's still a color line. It's still the examination of segregation by race at predominantly white institutions. All while advocating for diversity and inclusion. Last but not least, the R in color is recruitment. I believe color lines are further enhanced by way of recruitment of black students to predominantly white institutions. One thing that I've always wanted to do during my um, undergrad career I mean, I've considered for grad, but I, I don't think that's the route I'm going, is kind of just participating in the recruitment area of universities. I do think many predominantly white institutions could be so much better in the area of recruitment, but I just, I don't think many of them want to put money towards that or don't really understand how pivotal that is to changing an entire uh, black person's experience. When it comes to recruitment, I want to be very clear that black students are not dumb. Meaning, black students know that sometimes the only reason you're coming up to me is so that you can meet your quota for diversity. That's it. So that you can get a check for diversity, for how diverse the campus is, or how committed you are to diversity. Meanwhile, totally forgetting that you're not committed to inclusion. On the recruitment side of things, I believe the color line is created because many times black students are coming in to meet a quota. So just for a look. And then on the other end, I think black students, when they are coming or being recruited to predominantly white institutions, they are promised this, oh, you will have a safe environment to protest. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, right, you don't have an, an environment to thrive. 
So yeah, you know, they'll point point out their diversity center. They'll point out um their uh African American study center, they'll point out their their major in um black history. They'll, they'll do all these things to show you where you should belong. Meanwhile, that one thing is out of three hundred other things at that institution. So you belong in one space and then and two hundred and ninety-eight other spaces or two hundred and ninety-nine other spaces at that predominantly white institution, you do not fit in, and most importantly, you will not thrive there because you are black that is nothing short of a color line it's a color line that says your place is in african-american studies your place is in african history your place is in this diversity center your place is in our multicultural arena your place is in diversity and inclusion but your place is not outside of any of those other things and if you decide to exist in those spaces those majors with those people with the curriculum outside of what we're recruiting you for, then I can't promise you'll survive here. It's a color line that kind of asks you, do you want to survive or do you want to thrive? If you want to survive, I recommend that you obey the color line. That's how I see racial segregation. That's how I see sundown towns. That's how I see um, many times the cause of lynchings and all of that. Do you want to survive? If so... If you want to make it out of here in one piece, if you want to make it out of here alive, which typically people want to live, okay, um, then what you will do is you will adhere to the color lines. You will stay in your place. You will stay on your side of the road. You will stay on your side of the crosswalk. You will not make eye contact. You will look down. You will not make friends with anybody who is not within your class and who is not black. You will not, you will not, you will not, you will not. And as a result, you can survive. The thriving piece, what we talk about as black girl at a PWI or as black women at predominantly white institutions, is I'm not trying to survive, I'm trying to thrive. And so if what is going to be best for me is to break your glass ceilings, to step over your color line, and to do whatever it is that I want to do because racial segregation is not going to stop me from being a thriving black woman, then that's what I'm going to do and you're just going to have to suck it up. You catch my drift? Even in adopting that posture, it does not take away from the fact or delineate from the fact that racial segregation still exists and thrives, actually, at predominantly white institutions. I think it thrives so much that it makes segregation look easy at predominantly white institutions because we regularly uphold color lines and don't second guess. Matter of fact, we don't just uphold them, but we draw color lines. We tell folks, the folks who deserve to be in the program without bringing up race, but knowing good and well we're bringing up the demographic of the lighter skin, right? We may not add outwardly say oh we're drawing color lines but we talk about diversity and inclusion and then don't change anything within the institution again trust me i'm not talking about my beautiful institution i know it's a pwi but i love umw with a different type of love um Though over my past four years, I have held UMW accountable just for the folks who are second guessing and wondering if I'm tap dancing. I'm not. But for other predominantly white institutions, they have this tendency. All predominantly white institutions really have this tendency to say diversity and inclusion, but to still uphold and promote color lines from the pamphlets, from the way they recruit, from the folks they recruit where they recruit, what they give to folks who are coming to the school, how they treat black students compared to white students during the period of recruitment, what promises they make to current students, what what opportunities they attribute to black students and white students, and the differences between all of those things as it relates to race. All of those different areas and capacities are 
ones in which the color line is still upheld and many times promoted and supported by faculty, administrators, presidents, deans, parents, and most importantly, students. Without a college, or rather, without students, a college is not a college. Without a university, or again, without students, a university is not a, a university. So one is very much just as much as full as the other. No matter who's to blame, there is no point in denying that predominantly white institutions uphold color lines. And they do so boldly. So that's what I want to talk about. I still don't even remember the name of the class. And that's so terrible. Like I really, I really should. And I'm very disappointed in myself. I feel like it's race class and the say race class and it's race class and something. What is race class and race class and it don't matter right now. Race class and city race class and space is something like that, child. But all in all, I did want to focus on color line. I did want to talk about segregation and how racial segregation and how it exists. And it's really doing numbers at predominantly white institutions. So much so that you have black students who feel choked out of institutions, who can't breathe because they've just been surviving and having to succumb to these color lines. Many times, not even by choice, but by force. That is kind of like this unwritten, this fine print when you sign your acceptance letter or when you send, you send in your money for a deposit at a predominantly white university or institution. It's like there's this fine print that says if you don't follow by color lines, you will barely make it out. Racial segregation has not left. If anything, it's amplified, especially by way of higher education. And we try to make sense of it by saying that the world is changing and so people have to do better. But what does doing better have to mean with racial segregation when it comes to black folks being forced to, quote unquote, do better while also experiencing the worst type of treatment? There's this quote that comes from W.E.B. Bois, or some of you may say W.E.B. Du Bois. It comes from The Souls of Black Folks, written in 1903. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to end out because I think it says a lot to what I've spoken and to what I'm tired of saying. <laughs> I think he says it beautifully, but I also hope that if you listen all the way through, that you got something from this and that most importantly, that you get something as it relates to your experience, especially if you are a black person, especially if you are a black woman or black person at a predominantly white institution that you realize it's not you, it's the fabric of that institution. W.E. says, Between me and the other world, there is, a, there is ever an unasked question, unasked by some through feelings of delicacy, by others through the difficulty of rightly framing it. All nevertheless flood around it. They approach me in half-hesitant sort of way, eye me curiously or compassionately, and then, instead of saying directly, how does it feel to be a problem, they say, I know an excellent colored man in my town, or I fought in Mechanicsville, or do not these southern outrages make your blood boil? At these I smile, or am interested, or reduce the boiling to a simmer, as the occasion may inquire. To the real question, how does it feel to be a problem? I answer, seldom a word. Thank you for listening. 
This was a little different from our regular Black Girl at PWI episodes, but I hope you got to see the other side of the scholar of me and got to realize that color lines still exist at predominantly white institutions. Now, when we're talking about being a Black Girl at a PWI, you're just who Black Girl at a PWI is as an organization. You realize that we are not ignorant to the ways and the movements of predominantly white institutions, nor are we for it, which is why we constantly support that you are seen, you are heard, and you are felt, even when the world doesn't feel, see, or hear you. Love you so much, and thank you for listening. Now, class is out, but that don't mean you should be going ghost, okay? If you like today's discussion or want to keep it going, follow us on Instagram at blackgirlpwy and keep talking at talk. Also, don't forget to check out our portal for scholarships, financial aid tips, mental health, and motivation some days. This is Breezy signing out. Take care of yourself and keep showing up, sis.